You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead, and we have with us a special guest. It's Javier Quesada, sound editor for the amazing film Roma. Hi, Javier. How are you doing, man? Great. Thanks. So tell us about how you got started with Roma. Like, when was the first time you were approached with the project? Well, I've been working uh, freelance, but together with uh, supervising sound editor Sergio Diaz, since like 2012 and we we actually did the Cierto for Juan Asquaron a couple of years before Roma I remember us talking about it was only a small team of uh, Sergio me and and we had to pick up another editor for like ambiences halfway there and we were always talking about we had to do a great job because probably Alfonso would watching the process because he was involved not only in production, but he was Jonas' father. So we, we always thought, let's keep this 150%. Mm. And, and hopefully he'll like our work and maybe someday he'll invite us. And so like two and a half years later, when Sergio told me that, that we were doing Alfonso's movie, I was like, wow, <laughs> really paid off. Right, and this is after Gravity, which was just this massive sonic achievement. Yeah, the stakes were really high. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Gravity was an interesting movie because my personal connection to Gravity is when that film came out, we went and saw it in the theater, and my wife was nine months pregnant, and it stressed her out so much she came home and we had the baby that night. <laughs> wow. Like, she straight up went into labor Right after we watched Gravity, like that night. And Roma was, I don't think it was equally as stressful. It was far more stressful of a film than I thought it was going to be. Anytime there's a film that's coming out that I care about, that I really want to see, I do the best that I can to just go into it completely blind. I don't watch trailers. I don't read anything about any films that I care about. I just want to experience it in the way that it needs to be experienced, right? Totally blind. And um, yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into <laughs> when, you know, you kick it on Netflix and hit play and we sat and watched it all the way through the ending credits. Like at the end, we watched all the credits go by. We watched that airplane come by twice. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it's just like at the end of it, you're like, wow, that was, there was a lot there. There was a lot in that movie. Yeah. A lot to, a lot to digest. Yeah. Were you able to see it in a Dolby Atmos theater at some point? You know, unfortunately I had to watch it in my house and, you know, so I saw it in stereo. I know how much I'm missing. Tell me, you know, you bring up Atmos for a reason. What were the things that you guys were doing in Atmos in the film? Well, from the get-go, we were told that it was going to be mixed in Atmos. So instead of our your normal um, 2D movie or 5.1 movie, in a sense that everything is going on in the front and maybe some ambiences and music in the back, in this case... The approach was always like you were in a sphere and the camera was panning around. So we had to build the sound field, not only for what's in front of us, but behind us. Mm -hmm. It was like a spherical sound design. So we were always uh, cutting ambiences and, and effects, not only for the front, but for the back. And more work than usually 
for your typical 7-1 movie. And at the end of the edit, um, who really put everything in its place was Skip Lipsy. But it was always planned as an Atmos movie since the edit. So you did a talk for uh, Sound School in Milan that is online that both Renee and I watched that we'll put a link to on the episode page for this. And in it, you talked about the ambiences in Roma and how you were instructed to make it a really full world. And that's obviously what you're talking about with ambience. Can you just talk about how far you had to go with the filling out this world? Sure. Um, we had to do a lot of uh, visits to... For example, the hospital. Mm -hmm. I actually went there a couple of times and recorded with MS, with ORT, with different techniques, just to get as many sound beds as we could use. There was a lot of wide recordings for this movie. A lot of gigabytes piled up of just wild tracks, wild tracks, wild tracks. Because we knew Alfonso was going to ask for more. <laughs> so... We were always adding layers and layers to the front and to the back. And we would send it and the editor would show him the status and he would send us back notes. We actually never stopped recording. Even during the mix, we were still sending like additionals. And based on, on Alfonso's notes, we would know what was missing mm -hmm. from, from the construction. And then we would go out and record that. But even since the production phase, for example, for the Alconazo scene, we were given permission to go to the, to the set for three days. And I set up three microphones on the terrace above the library. And I could record every take and every rehearsal of the people clashing and singing the national anthem. So it was a big crowd scene for those who haven't seen the film. a lot of like wallas that we would we wouldn't be able to do in post-production or probably we would we would have but it would have been very costly 
and this we're talking about probably above 800 extras so it was a good idea to record it yeah and it wouldn't have sounded as realistic if you were trying to build that all out of a loop group of 10 people kind of thing yeah and they closed this big avenue just for the movie so it was a, a massive set it was going to be hard to reproduce and it really paid off mm-hmm. I, I really like those recordings and um so you say you were recording with three mics on the uh, balcony kind of on top of the building up there what mics were you using and what setup were you using i was using uh three ntg3 shotguns mm-hmm. and it, in addition the xy capsule from the zoom recorder mm-hmm. yeah that was pretty much it it was three mics plus the xy in a lot of passes a lot of takes <laughs> Did you have to deal with a lot of the rest of the the sound of the production, right? Because I know a lot of the reason that's a little atypical of a workflow is because you have, you know, people on set barking orders and this and that and a bunch of other stuff that's extraneous to what the actual sound is that you're trying to capture. How did you deal with that? Yeah, actually, like Sergio was down there at, at the field level with another recorder. This is Sergio Diaz, who was the uh, yeah. supervising sound editor on it. Right. He was on the set too. And there was another assistant working with us. And the first day I offered to take all the material and qualify it and review it. And it was like 76 tracks. (laughs) (laughs) And the next day, Sergio said, you did a great job. Maybe you should do it today also. So you were recording all day and then doing quality control and metadata on the tracks all night. night. Yeah. Yeah. Sleeping's overrated, eh? Yeah. (laughs) And then we had to be at 5 a.m. on the set the next day. Wow. But it was fun. But it must have been a lifesaver when you got into post. Oh, yeah. And as you said, there was a lot of people on the Megabox calling instructions that we couldn't use in the movie. So we had to cut a lot of those sections but in the end, it really paid off because we had a lot of material that was real that really belonged to the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true of the vehicles as well. You know, any period piece has period vehicles. How did you approach that? Well, first, I had the drivers, the production drivers, mm-hmm. for a couple of days. And when they went to record some scenes at, to the beach, they left the production house where the movie takes place. It was alone so they they left us record uh, fully and everything everything i wanted so i went there for three days i had the house for myself and the drivers came in one day with all the models that were more prominent in the movie and i had them do a lot of passes and arrivals and squeaking of tires in the garage Mm -hmm. and all kinds everything i could think of because you have to realize at this point, we hadn't seen the cut. Mm-hmm. We, we just knew the cars were involved. So I record everything I could think of from the, like the glove compartment, the tires, the doors, everything for every model. Yeah. And then the problem was that in the actual set where they filmed the movie, the house, it was in, in the actual Colonia Roma. And so planes fly overhead all the time like every I'm not exaggerating like every two minutes there's an overhead plane so I had to cut (laughs) and 
start again. So most of that material ended up not working as as much as, as we wanted. So I had to record a lot of cars later with private owners. I would call them and, and tell them, hey, look, I'm working on a movie. I cannot say which one, but I need to record the sound of your car if, if you think that could be arranged. And it was hard to explain that I wanted to record the sound and not the actual car, the image of the car. Mm -hmm. But once they understood, they would let me go to their address and, and I would have them like leave and arrive and do several pass-bys, doors, everything, exhaust. And at this point, we had, uh, we had seen the cut, so I knew precisely what, what we needed mm -hmm. for the edit. And the cut was super intense. I mean, these cars, they're not just driving down the road. The, just the parking in the garage sequences, I mean, they're, they're long, intricate cuts from perspective to perspective to perspective sequences. Because, yeah. you know, that garage is insane. So it's like, you know, the specific moves that your drivers had to do was it was probably a, a pretty long list. Yeah. And there were a lot of like professional drivers involved. So when I when I had to reproduce the sound, it was not as easy because right. there were not stunt drivers, they were normal drivers. Yeah. And I was trying to record as much as I could without endangering their cars and, and them. No. So at what point did you sit down with, with Alfonso or with anyone else and, and do a spotting session and kind of get, you know, broad strokes with regards to how he wanted things to feel? Because there's so much storytelling happening with the sound. There's no score in the film Roma. It's all sound and the sound is constantly in motion. And there's all of these moments where it's very clearly it was directed upon you to make this scene super dense because we're going to put it right next to this scene that's that's very sparse. How did the process of mapping all that out go? How did that come about? It actually was a process of collecting as many ingredients as we could for the mix, building a large session that would encompass all the ingredients that we needed. And Sergio was in close communication with, with Alfonso 
although he didn't actually came and do a spot session with us, he was always through to email or to you know voice calls. And then Sergio would relay those notes to the rest of the team, including me. And he would say, look, guys, he really loved this. He didn't like this dog. We need to give them seven different options of the dog. <laughs> so for, for instance, one week, Sergio would tell me, okay, I need you to record the whole movie, edit the whole movie uh, with Boras, all the barking and the whimperings and everything but give me seven options of that edit. So basically do the movie seven, seven times. <laughs> and then he will select which one he wants to keep and then we delete the others. And for probably most of the sound effects in the movie, we gave Alfonso like seven, eight, uh, ten options no? until he was happy with one. It was like give 200% and then let him decide. Wow. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And, you know, the interesting, the other thing I'm curious about is like, so as you're working with Skip Leavesay and, and he's doing the re-recording mixing, I'm assuming that process continues. And so how was the interaction between him and the rest of your team and Alfonso happening in the midst of all that iteration? Oh, I wish I knew that part. Actually, I had to stay here in, in Mexico City to continue sending the additionals. Oh, wow as well as there were a lot of editors involved. And we were actually feeding them audios and Pro Tools sessions on a daily basis. We weren't able to all go to the mixed stage. Which would have been in New York City, correct? Yeah, I think it was in, Lo in London, actually. London, okay. Yeah, it was a whole two months continuous. Uh, Sergio told me it was like 70 days straight. And I think there's interviews with Skip also that he says it was 70 days straight without weekends. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and we were like checking email daily and sending them everything that was missing. Well, you only gave them eight yeah. versions of everything, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then I yeah. went and watched it in stereo. <laughs> <laughs> I remember towards the end of the, the last days of the mix, I also wanted some iguana walking on the roof of, for the scene where they are at the um, beach in, mm -hmm. uh, where they got staying at this like small villa and I couldn't find any <laughs> <laughs> any one or record one and I think they got it from somebody else but it was like this crazy um, demands every day. Well, and you had to call and help, right? You talked about how you uh, you approached Dan Krober to help you with, with grabbing some sounds. Yeah, at the beginning... We were building the the bed for the Mexico City in the 70s. So we needed a, like almost like room tones, but like ambiences from the city without any modern engines or horns. Mm -hmm. And Ann Krober actually had some recordings with those characteristics from New York City. And some of those worked, but at the end we had to use some recordings that Sergio Diaz did in Mexico City in 25th of December, ah. Christmas Eve, there was nobody in the street, so he recorded a lot of ambiences. And then we had to mix those with some other elements to make it work. But yeah, Uncrubber actually uh, helped. And there were a lot of uh, like sound recordists that I had to contact at one point, you know, to get more elements, you know. How did you go about finding people for that? Well, there's a good thing that now with... Uh, 
Facebook and Twitter. Well, I have a lot of sound recordists added to my friends list, and some of them I, I, have, I have collaborated with in the past. So it wasn't a matter of sending them an inbox and asking them if they had elements with such and such characteristics. And it really helped. And I think that's great in our time that we can just send an email and see if somebody has elements that can help you and vice versa. They'll so message you. For sure. Well, speaking of Twitter, that's actually how this interview came to be because you posted on Twitter a few weeks ago a screenshot of one of the uh, of your Pro Tools session for a certain scene in the movie, the uh, children going out into the ocean scene, and uh, talked about a little bit in follow up tweets about how you strive to change the character of the ocean as the camera pans out into the ocean. So, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet, there's a scene that starts off on a beach and the kids are playing. They ask to go out in the water and are told not to go very far. And then obviously children don't listen, but it's one continuous shot that goes from the beach out into the ocean where they go to grab the kids and then comes back. And the, the character of the ocean completely changes as the camera enters it and goes over the top. It never goes underwater, but it goes or skims across the top. Yeah. I found that super interesting, the idea of changing the feeling of the ocean through sound, because it's one shot. The picture doesn't change. It's not like you can suddenly cut to choppy waves and stuff like that to create the fear. So do you want to just talk a little bit about how you approach that? Yeah, for sure. Like you just explained, Sergio explained also what Alfonso wanted you want this this uh, crescendo mm-hmm. that he wanted the ocean to feel more menacing as we go deeper and there were a lot of passes and yeah i would like to remind like also your audience that there were a lot of editors involved so i don't want to take like sole credit for any scene of course because everything was collaborative but for example in my session I had to build from like relaxing beds of the shore first and then build up to the actual waves crashing and a lot of the low frequency sound of rumble, you know, to hear the surf crashing. And actually, I hadn't planned it in my head. Actually, like a lot of scenes, you just start building in Pro Tools and see what, what works and what doesn't. It's like intuitive at some point, and you know that it works when it gives you certain sensation when you play back. And we were approaching what Alfonso wanted, and then at some point it was approved, and then skip did the final mix and positioning of all of all the layers of sound. I understand that they actually probably added more layers to those layers. Because as I said before, there was never a finished edit. We were always pouring in more ingredients.
That was one of the most stressful scenes in film that I've watched in probably since Gravity. I was stressed out. Wow. My, my <laughs> wife was crying. Like, we were stressed out. That, like, what you were doing and what, what the team came together with, it worked, man. Yeah. I was, like, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was worried. And everybody did a great job. The ADR people, the dialogue editors, I mean... Nobody was slacking. Everybody was playing their A game, I think. Yeah. And when you put everybody's work together, it really shines. Yeah. And so as we talk about that more, tell me a little bit more about the technical aspects of, of how you were collaborating. Were you guys just syncing up Dropboxes or, or how were you exchanging sessions back and forth and labeling files, that type of thing? We started the project using our the usual, you know, WeTransfer or Mega but we realized early on that we would need more. And so we ended setting up uh, an FTP server for us so we could up upload, every editor could upload his daily sessions there and Sergio would have access to everything. So instead of like emailing Sergio, hey, I sent you this, we would just send him like a WhatsApp message or an email and telling, oh, I uploaded this and here's the link. And the notes you sent me yesterday, here they are. And everything was through FTP with dates. So it was easy to spot everything. And were you pulling back down submixes for context? Or like, how did you know what else everyone else was doing? I had access to the Foley team was doing. I did some of the Foley myself, but then we ended um, needing a full two-people team just for the Foley recording and acting and, and editing. But... I have some access, not access to what everybody was doing because I guess there were concerns about like material leaking out. Mm -hmm. So it was very tight. So when Sergio is coming to you every day for 70 days on the mix, asking for changes and notes, obviously everyone is pulling to make the best movie possible. But when there's that many changes, it can start to become difficult to keep a positive team and have everybody be upbeat about it when just every day you're getting new demands for changes. How did he go about keeping that positive and keeping everybody on track? Well, yeah, I think that was one of his biggest successes to keep keeping the team together and the spirits high. Certainly not easy. And sometimes, you know, payments sometimes get delayed like in every project. People have like health issues or personal issues. But I guess in the end, everybody was really rooting for Alfonso. And we all wanted a movie made in Mexico by Mexi a Mexican crew to really do well. And people turn to Mexico and say, wow, these guys really know how to do movies. They just don't have maybe the, the resources that other countries have. But I think that was part of what kept us like pulling through. And in my case, I really, really loved the movie from the first time I saw the first cuts. So I couldn't turn back. And then you're at a point where you've already invested hmm. two years of your life into a project. And it would be silly and foolish to quit at that point and get off the ship. Because you know the ship is probably going to do a great shore soon. So <laughs> might as well stick around. <laughs> Yeah, you're also sitting and watching all the amazing performances on the screen. I mean, what the actors were able to do was just yeah. spectacular from top to bottom. Oh, yeah. It was inspiring from all the departments, photography, 
the editing, the acting, everybody was doing their best. So we felt inspired, I guess, when there wasn't inspiration to be drawn from ourselves, we were always inspired by the work of others in this case. So what was the most surprising thing to you? Like what came across your plate that maybe you were surprised it went as easy as it did, or maybe you were surprised that it was more difficult than you thought it would be? The car scenes were very difficult because getting the actual models was hard. Also the airplanes, because Alfonso was very specific about what kind of engine he wanted in the mix. So I had to track down those specific engines and give him also options. So I need the DC-8 or such specific model and he wants uh, six or seven options. So that, that was part of the challenge also. How are you going about delivering all these options? Like, how are you, how's your track management going with that many different options for everything? I would keep a folder with just wild tracks and then divide those wild tracks by, like, say, cars or dogs. And then within them, like, subfolders with the dates. And we also had this, the sessions just by... At first, there were just uh, independent scenes. Then, then we had blocks. And towards like the last six months, we actually had like a final cut. We had every scene identified. So we knew that, like for example, this session runs from scene 144 to 167. And yeah, as you said, we had to keep our sounds very tidy to be able to find them quickly. Mm-hmm. But the just the wild tracks folder alone grew up to be like this massive file, and it was in the FTP also, so everybody could access. Most everybody could access what everybody else was recording, and so it was this big pool of sound. And when you would actually deliver your edit sessions with all these different options, were you just having like one version of it unmuted and then just stacks of tracks muted underneath it, or were, how are you tackling it? Yeah, I would have the option that I like the most on the top. And then I would have the rest of the oceans muted. But not muted the track, but the actual regions were turned off. So if they wanted, they could turn the rest of the tracks, turn them on, and check them one by one. And all the sessions had to have like this very specific nomenclature to indicate for what scene it was, what elements like, say, Boras, the dog, or the airplane, or the people selling uh, trinkets in the streets, or the earthquake uh, special effects. We would put in the actual session the name of the elements we were working on that session alone. Yeah, because eventually Skip's got to be able to unwrangle all of that and, and put them into into Atmos elements and move them around the screen. So you got to know what the heck you're yeah. doing. <laughs> And I guess Sergio at this point has had this mega session of all the, most all the movie because they actually had to divide it between like one session just for ambiences and special effects and 
volley, and another session for uh, dialogues, and another session for music. So they were running on three sessions, I, I understand, in the, in the mixing stage. Wow. And then you come out of it with a giant library of, of custom recordings for the film, which is also amazing. Yeah, I know. I now have this library called uh, Roma <laughs> Library, which is a lot of period stuff, and sometimes not even period stuff. Like, um, for example, the scene in, in the hospital, in the earthquake, a lot of rumbling and the lamps hitting the roof, or the actual uh, the nurses passing mm -hmm. by with stretchers. A lot of sounds that could still exist, but also existed in that period. So you had asked Renee earlier if he saw it in Atmos. When it premiered, did you get to go to a premiere to see it in Atmos? Or how did you first see the final version of it? I first saw the movie in a limited run in uh, Cinema Tonala here in Mexico City that was actually outfitted with Atmos by Alfonso <laughs> and his team. Wow. <laughs> it, yeah, that theater didn't have Atmos before and they outfitted it for Roma and now it has Atmos and it sounded great and I had to buy my own tickets for that because it was like a month before the premiere the actual premiere we were invited by Netflix to Cineteca Nacional and that wasn't an Atmos mix because that theater is 7-1 I believe so the the only time I saw it in Atmos was in Cinema Tonala And I actually went like three times. <laughs> the first just with my girlfriend, then I took my family, and then the third one with my friends. <laughs> I wanted everybody to see it. Of um, course you did. As best as, as they could. The first time you saw it, was there anything that surprised you as you're watching the film down? Did anything jump out that you didn't expect? Nothing unexpected, but I was just in awe of the job they did with the mix because I had never seen any a single scene mixed So when I saw what Skip and Sergio did in the mix, I was like, wow. Yeah, there's so much intent. They do such a masterful job of building density and then dropping it off. The, yeah. the density of what's going on is it's very clearly story-driven, and it's such a perfect job of driving your emotions. The stillborn baby scene was just a masterclass in how to do that, how to ramp it up and then dump it back down and give you all of that space to fill with your own tension and your own anxiety. There's all that's happening. It was really impressive to watch. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that scene with the newborn, Sergio told me that he wanted the room to sound very busy with the nurses and doctors, like looking for tools and opening drawers and closing drawers, like in an emergency state. So I built all the foley of that scene to make it sound like very busy patients screaming and, and um, crying off screen or other mothers in, in labor. I actually recorded my girlfriend like pretending she was having labor. <laughs> and it was a, just a massive but really fun scene. But what I was really surprised when I saw the final mix is I knew all the elements that the scenes had. And they were very heavy with elements. And somehow Skip and Sergio managed to make it sound very articulate, very dynamic, and you never feel like overwhelmed with sound. They actually layered so that, that you feel uh, different layers of, of sound that feel very subtle, some of them, and some more in the foreground. And they managed that interplay very well. 
Yeah. In the closing moments of that, there's two separate conversations that are happening simultaneously. And, you know, what they did was they really cleared out a lot of space for those things to go on. And by doing that, when they took her into the back room, into the, into the surgery room, it's just such a different feel. And it felt, at first it felt kind of manic and crazy when they're out in the front. And then you take it back there and it goes from manic to serious just by by losing all of the rest of the craziness of all the crazy activity. And uh, it was just super, super effective to draw those two emotions so clearly. Yeah, I guess they went like from the forest to the to specific leaf. Yeah. Then they would zoom back out. And that was doing seamlessly and with very skilled hands. Yeah. Because there were a lot of elements to play with. So it was <laughs> a big job mixing it. So you mentioned earlier in the interview about how you were actually on set for some of the scenes recording sounds. So you were obviously involved early. Was it the plan from the very beginning to have no specific score? Or was that something that evolved as the sound built? I think it was the original plan, not having a score. Because I, I remember talking with Sergio early on and he would tell me that there wasn't going to be a, a score. So, and that the responsibility of all the sound design was going to fall on our shoulders. So it was good to know early on what we were getting into. Yeah, that's a massive responsibility because it's not a short film. Yeah. Like that's a lot of stuff that was put on your plate and handled just expertly by the whole crew. An amazing job was done. Obviously, the mix, if they took 70 days, they used every minute because it was, there's so much going on. And as Renee said, there's a clarity that is like it was talked about amongst on Twitter and stuff like that. Like people were telling me, you got to go see this in Atmos because it's something special. People talked about it, how it was one of the first proper uses of Atmos that wasn't showy, if you will. Like it wasn't like, oh, there's a plane going over my head. Now we're going to hear a giant plane going over my head. Nothing was like slapping you in the face, but it was so immersive. I think Alfonso's cinematography with regards to his whole concept really played into that as well, where he had a camera locked off in a static position and just turning, just rotating a full 360. He did that repeatedly in the film. 
And um, that really gave the sound field an opportunity to do the whole swirly thing that Atmos is so particularly good at. Yeah, I'm actually writing a little bit about that now in my master's because it really was a great example of how to use the format, not just in a gimmicky way and to make you feel like you're surrounded by sound just just per se. It was a really a really good use of of a sound field to make you feel that you're in the point of audition of the camera and that everything that's sounding and going on around you makes actual sense with what you're seeing. So it was a real 3D construction in a sort of way. It's one of the few examples of cinematography done by someone that is consciously thinking about how this shot is going to sound. Yeah. And, and you can just tell. I think Alfonso is one of the few directors that really saw what Atmos could did early and he dived right into it. And since Gravity, he's made really good uses of the format. And he's shown that it's not just for big action movies or sports movies, but you can make subtle dramas, uh, very layered, very textured, very articulate with this format because working with objects really helps you separation and clarity. And I think the future is very exciting as more and more directors start using the format. One of the other things that he would do you know, relatively frequently in the film is he would place the camera in between two people having a conversation, staring at one person while the other person speaking is behind the camera. Yeah. And so you'd hear the second part of the conversation from behind you. I guess the first time I really saw that done was in District 9, which was a similar kind of situation where you had a, a documentary-style camera shooting scenes and somebody behind the camera having a conversation with somebody in front of the camera. The distinction with Roma was that Alfonso would set that up and he would sit that for a minute for about 80% of the conversation. And then he would rotate the camera out to where you could see both people. And you would feel that pan happen too, where all of a sudden both voices were now in front of you. Yeah, yeah. It was a point of audition mix since he was thinking about the movie probably. It's unique in the first place to have the director be the DP. And on top of that, to have a director DP have that much of a head for how things are going to sound and set you up in such a way to where you have this palette and you have a clear vision of, of where it's all going to go. It's super, super cool. Yeah. And we knew that Alfonso was all about sound and that was part of what kept us excited throughout because we knew we were in good hands <laughs> as best as you could wish for in, in a collaborative a job like this. So as you came out at the end of it, Javier, what kind of things did you learn? What are the big lessons that you took from doing the project? Actually, it's funny because obviously you learn a lot of technical traits like how to be faster and how to be more uh, effective and how to keep your sessions more in order and everything. But actually, I feel that I learned more like in the human resources side, like how to be a better collaborator, because this film in particular was so many collaborators that you have to really be uh, a team player to really make it work. And some other projects are smaller and you can even be left on your own for a couple of months and work at your own pace. But this was a daily collaboration. And I think that 
that was what I, the muscle that I exercised the most in this project was the collaborative uh, muscle. Yeah, that's way cool. Yeah, it was such a massive project. I feel like Sergio must have spent 90% of his time dealing with uh, file transfers and such like that <laughs> rather than doing actual sound design. Yeah. So that's why he leaned so heavily on all the sound editors, I bet. Yeah, and I think that's why he ultimately recruited like extra editors because we were like a small three or four people team at the beginning. And we ended up being like 20 or more even. But it's important, as you say, to keep your mind clear just for the sound design while others tackle like the more technical stuff. Mm -hmm. Totally agree, yeah. So have you been working with Sergio on anything else since this? Yeah, we've worked on a couple of projects after that. And then I had to actually f go 100% on my master's. So I'm, I'm making a pause, so to speak, right now <laughs> from big projects because I know that if I don't finish it this summer as planned and I go into big projects again, it can be another two years. So might as well just take the time and one step at a time. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's probably healthy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm doing like smaller documentaries, uh, not that documentaries are small, but maybe they tell me that they just need the sound effects or the ambiences for a documentary for two or three weeks, and I can do that. Or advertisement or smaller gigs. For sure. Just to keep me from going rusty, you know? Mm -hmm. But at the, at the same time, I, I'm trying to steer away from big projects until like August when I'm done. Yeah. What kind of other stuff do you do for fun, Javier? Like, what kind of non-audio things do you do just to blow off some steam? Uh, I like photography. Yeah? As a hobby. Yeah, for sure. I keep a reflex camera that I buy a lens every time I can. And I have the spare money to do it because it's an expensive hobby. Just another thing to spend money on. Yeah. But the microphones and, and monitors have priority for sure. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, hey, man, thank you for jumping on the podcast. Thank you for coming and telling the story of, of the film. It's uh, it's just an impressive achievement, and I know it's a team effort. And, um, you know, what you guys put together is going to stand the test of time. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah, we hope so. Also, before you go, there is this academic, now that I'm doing my master's, that he actually wrote an article about the sounds of Roma, Rene Idrobo. Okay. He actually dove in. He's working on a honey's PhD. Cool. And he used uh, Roma like a case study. Yeah. yeah, yeah, send it. We'll put it in the show notes. Hey, man, one of these days, my wife and I, we need to go down to Mexico City, man. If we, if we go down there, I'll give you a ring. Tone Menders Road Trip 2025, Mexico City. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should tell. I mean, no, my, my wife and I have been talking about it. We're like, we got to get out of the country, man. No, but it's, it's great that you... Um, are of an open mind to come because there's like a lot of sometimes misinformation that Mexico's dangerous and whatever. Yeah. But it's really not the case. Like, it's as dangerous as any country. Depends on where you are and what time of night. Well, I mean, my family comes from Ciudad Juarez, so, you know. My wife lived in Mexico City for like four months right after we met each other. We met each other, kind of fell in love, and she was like, okay, I'm leaving for nine months. And she traveled through Mexico, but for like four of the months was in Mexico City. So uh, she knows all about it, but I've never been to Mexico City. So it's definitely on my list of places to go. 
and it won't be hard to convince my wife to go back. She loved it there. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome anytime. Awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll see you. Later. Bye. See you later, Renee. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 